here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Mark Levin here, our number, 877-381-3811, 877-381-3811. There is truly a big breaking story tonight. And I will cite it from the Washington Examiner. Hunter Biden investigation infected by politics and preferential treatment, says a senior IRS official seeking whistleblower status by Jerry Dunleavy. And this is now being picked up everywhere. Because this is a serious supervisory special agent of the IRS criminal division. He's a career employee. It's a bombshell. An IRS agent is seeking whistleblower protections and alleging that the criminal investigation into Hunter Biden has been infected by politics and preferential treatment. The bombshell whistleblower claims come from a career IRS criminal supervisory special agent who says he's been overseeing, quote, the ongoing and sensitive investigation, unquote, of a high-profile and controversial subject since early 2020. A source familiar with the letter told the Washington Examiner that this is about President Joe Biden's son who's being investigated for several potential crimes. The whistleblower's lawyer, Mark Little, sent a letter to the heads of multiple House and Senate committees telling them his client's protected disclosures lay out examples of preferential treatment in politics, improperly infecting decisions, I'm quoting, and protocols that would normally be followed by career law enforcement professionals in similar circumstances if the subject were not politically connected, quote unquote. The IRS agent's allegations also, quote, contradict sworn testimony to Congress by a senior political appointee, unquote. This is their letter. And, quote, involved failure to mitigate clear conflicts of interest in the ultimate disposition of the case against Hunter Biden. The whistleblower's lawyer said the IRS agent had also made already legally protected disclosures internally at the IRS, as well as the Treasury Department's 
Inspector General for Tax Administration, and the Justice Department's Inspector General. Republicans have long contended that Hunter Biden's lucrative business dealings in Ukraine and China indicate he may have committed crimes related to foreign lobbying or money laundering or taxes, although recent reports have indicated federal investigations may have narrowed the focus of the Biden's investigation to tax fraud in 2016 and 2017 and lying on a federal form on purchasing a handgun in 2018. Both are potential felonies that could lead to prison time if pursued by the Department of Justice. Gee, I wonder how the judges in Washington, D.C. would treat it. It's up to U.S. Attorney David Weiss, a Trump-appointed holdover, who's doing a crappy job so far, and the Delaware prosecutor overseeing the case to decide whether to indict the president's son. And it goes on. Although the Justice Department indicting the son of a sitting president would be a major development, the bigger questions remain whether the department has been considering more significant charges tied to money laundering and foreign lobbying, and whether investigators have been looking into the national security implications of Hunter Biden's overseas business dealings, especially his association with businessmen linked to communist Chinese intel. Now here's where I come on this. How do you constrict or contain an investigation of Hunter Biden and not look into his father? How is that possible? It really isn't. And I've been contending here from day one that the Department of Injustice has been covering up for Joe Biden and they're going to continue to do so. I spoke to you last week about how the Biden White House was involved in the so-called documents investigation of Donald Trump and the Democrat Party's tentacles. Other than here, have you heard that anywhere else? No, you haven't. Because people don't care. They just drop it. But I care. But I care. And how the Democrat Party was was really behind what was taking place with Alvin Bragg, which is why you saw them defending him and, what, and what's been taking place in New York during that hearing yesterday. But now we have a senior career IRS criminal supervisory special agent who wants whistleblower status literally puts his career on the line, or hers, seeks whistleblower status, goes to an outside special lawyer involved in such things. That's how bad the situation is at the IRS and the Treasury Department in terms of investigating Hunter Biden. And I'm sure that's how bad it is in terms of investigating Joe Biden. Where there is a the only wall these guys built are the wall to protect Joe Biden. They built a wall around him to protect him from criminal investigation. Really quite outrageous. So this is breaking news. Hunter Biden investigation infected by politics and preferential treatment, says an IRS whistleblower. 
seeking whistleblower official legal status. And this whistleblower has said that he's, he's raised concerns with the Inspector General of Justice. He's raised concerns with the Treasury Department. He's raised concerns with others. He's getting nowhere. Nowhere. He's raised it with the Treasury Department's Inspector General. He's raised it with the Justice Department's Inspector General. Legally protected disclosures. And now he says, I got to go to Congress. This is just, uh, this is unacceptable. Republicans would likely very much be disappointed, it says here, in Minimal charges brought against Hunter Biden. Shouldn't be minimal charges brought against Hunter Biden. Chuck Rassley says, based on recent protected disclosures to my office, the FBI has within its possession significant, impactful, and voluminous evidence with respect to potential criminal conduct by Hunter Biden. And he said that in October 2022 letter to Garland, to Christopher Ray, and to this U.S. Attorney Vice. They have everything they need to charge, convict, and throw Hunter Biden in prison while they're busy chasing the January 6th paraders. And this goes well beyond, and that's why the Republicans are really digging in here, because they know that this leads to Papa. And I see that Robert Kennedy Jr. has has announced that he's running for president. Let me tell you something. He could become a very, very serious candidate in a very short period of time. No other serious Democrat. I I forget the woman's name. She's not serious. Williamson or something? Marianne Williamson. There you go. But Robert Kennedy Jr., even though he has some flaky ideas, he's not a flake. Joe Biden is a flake with flaky ideas. There's a difference. But he could become a serious challenger. Just because so many Democrats are sick and tired of Joe Biden. I'm not talking about the ruling class. They love Joe Biden. They've known Joe Biden for the longest time. I'm talking about voters. Joe Biden's popularity is uh, it's about as high as uh, Raul Castro. While in some parts of our country that would be very high, but I'm talking about South Florida. I'll be right back. Mark in. Let me ask you, what the heck is going on with the banks? These bank failures are absolutely nuts. How are we supposed to find sanity in this mess? And I was talking with Augusta Precious Metals, and they said tons of people are buying gold to protect the retirement savings right now. I think it's more important than ever to own gold. And guess what? If you have $100,000 plus saved for retirement, Augusta will actually pay you in pure gold to learn how gold IRAs can protect you. Reach out to Augusta Precious Metals today and get started with gold. If you're worried about the bank failures, this is something you can do for yourself. Just call 877-4-GOLD-IRA to learn how to protect your retirement and get your free gold coin. That's Augusta Precious Metals at 877-4-GOLD-IRA. Again, 
877-4-GOLD-IRA. Consult your financial professionals before any investment and see risk disclosures at AugustaPreciousMetals.com. The corruption in this Biden administration is incredibly significant, which is why the Democrats are doing everything they can to sabotage every hearing to look into these matters. Over at Blaze Media, the Afghanistan Inspector General reveals taxpayer money is flowing to the Taliban, and the Biden administration is guilty, quote, of unprecedented obstruction. See the pattern? John Sopko, S-O-P-K-O, Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, told Congress today that taxpayer dollars are flowing into the Taliban's pockets. The shocking admission was made during a House Oversight Committee hearing about the Biden administration's disastrous and deadly withdrawal from Afghanistan in August 2021. This is from Chris and Lowe at The Blaze. Quote, unfortunately, as I sit here today, I cannot assure this committee or the American taxpayer that we are not currently funding the Taliban, nor can I assure you that the Taliban are not diverting the money we are sending from the intended recipients, which are the poor Afghan people. Sopko explained that obstruction from the State Department and the U.S. Agency for International Development in the Biden administration has been, quote, unprecedented, unquote. He said both agencies have demonstrated and, quote, abject refusal to allow oversight, unquote, of the billions of taxpayer dollars that have been sent to Afghanistan. Sapko later said, I don't trust the Taliban as far as you can throw them. The information we're getting, again, not from the State Department, who isn't talking to us, or USAID, is the Taliban is already diverting funds. Here is the special investigator, the special inspector general. That's his job. He's the inspector general to get to the bottom of what's taking place. And he's be obstructed by Blinken's State Department and USAID, USAID, Agency for International Development. You've got a senior supervisory IRS criminal investigator who seeks whistleblower status because his investigation of Hunter Biden is being obstructed by a political appointee from the Biden administration. Sapko said, I would just say, I haven't seen a starving Taliban fighter on TV. They all seem to be fat, dumb, and happy. I see a lot of starving Afghan children on TV, so I'm wondering where all this funding is going. According to his testimony, the U.S. has made available to Afghanistan more than $8 billion since the withdrawal less than two years ago. Why are we giving them anything? They're the enemy. Biden takes our money and throws it around. Throughout his testimony, Sapko repeatedly returned to the Biden administration's obstruction. In fact, he said Seiger, that's his office, has not heard from, quote, anybody in the administration, really, and said the routine meetings with top government and military leaders that happened in, previous, in the previous administration have ceased 
under Biden. So they occurred under Trump. They've ceased under Biden. Now it's just radio silence, he said. Sapko's eye-opening testimony came about two weeks after the Biden administration released its after-action report about the Afghanistan withdrawal. The report attempted to blame former President Donald Trump for what happened under Biden's watch, completely absolving Biden's administration. And that blame game continued prior to the hearing, CNN reported. The White House is denying they are obstructing SAPCO's oversight efforts, by the way. Liars, thieves, corrupt obstructors. These are career people who have the guts to come forward. We have FBI, some career people coming whistleblowers who have guts to come forward. At the IRS, now a key senior supervisory criminal investigator, a civil servant, the guts to come forward seeking whistleblower status. Now we have the special inspector general with the guts to come forward who's being obstructed, who's being obstructed by the Department of State and AID, which is part of the Department of State. Did you know that we've given $8 billion to the Taliban since our surrender two years ago? Did you know that? I didn't know that. $8 billion? No wonder our enemies think we're weak, because we are. No wonder our enemies on the move, because now's the time. They're not stupid. Stupid is the people who vote for Joe Biden and the Democrats. That's stupid. You got to hate our country if you vote for Joe Biden. You really do. Now, I know that Robert Kennedy Jr., I know that he's no Barry Goldwater. I know he's a lib. But I also know this guy has the potential, I think, not being a Democrat, but at least has the potential to make some inroads here because I don't like most Americans other than Democrats who serve on these committees are happy with the way that Joe Biden surrendered and by the way there's still hundreds if not thousands of American prisoners over there I'll be right back let me ask you what the heck is going on with the banks these bank failures are absolutely nuts How are we supposed to find sanity in this mess? And I was talking with Augusta Precious Metals, and they said tons of people are buying gold to protect the retirement savings right now. I think it's more important than ever to own gold. And guess what? If you have $100,000 plus saved for retirement, Augusta will actually pay you in pure gold to learn how gold IRAs can protect you. Reach out to Augusta Precious Metals today and get started with gold. If you're worried about the bank failures, this is something you can do for yourself. Just call 877-4-GOLD-IRA to learn how to protect your retirement and get your free gold coin. That's Augusta Precious Metals at 877-4-GOLD-IRA. Again, 877-4-GOLD-IRA. Consult your financial professionals before any investment and see risk disclosures at AugustaPreciousMetals.com. 
The Mark Levin Show, live and national at 877-381-3811. Special Inspector General for Afghanistan has held that job for 12 years. And here's what he said in his own words today. Cut four, go. A lack of cooperation by state, and I'm not talking about the IGs. I'm talking about the Department of State and, to a lesser extent, USAID, is unprecedented in the nearly 12 years that I have been the cigar. And and I must add, in the two decades that I did congressional oversight, both in the Senate and the House, due to this refusal to fully cooperate, a significant portion of cigars' work, including the the five reports we did for this committee, have been hindered and delayed. It's a cover-up, that's why. The Biden administration put out its propaganda last week. It's like a 10, 12-page document that could have been written by other PR people and probably was. They blame Trump. They get all the headlines, all the attention, knowing that this hearing is going to be the following week. And this gentleman, who's a career guy, he's been there a long time, talks about how much money has gone to the Taliban, that we can't track it. And what he's saying is there's a cover-up. There's a cover-up. Now, I only have three hours on this program, so i got to keep moving. And so I want to ask you a question. This is the anniversary of what? 248 years ago, this week. The battles of Lexington and Concord. I wonder if this is being taught in our schools. Patrick K. O'Donnell has written a fantastic piece at Breitbart. And I want to read this to you because the truth is most of the people on TV and radio don't know anything about the battles of Lexington and Concord, so they don't talk about them. But I will. 240 years ago, farmers, tradesmen, laborers, mariners, Americans of all stripes came together to defend themselves against the most professional army in the world. The battles of Lexington and Concord. April 19, 1775 marked the beginning of an epic journey for a band of brothers who risked everything for a nation yet to be born. Over the course of nearly eight years, many of these Americans marched thousands of miles, often shoeless, unpaid and starving, to fight for the freedom and liberties most Americans today take for granted. And their resolute stand matters in light of multiple current events and threats to that American liberty. In the fall of 1774, King George III told Lord North, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, That, quote, blows must decide whether they, that is the colonists, but hereafter referred to as the Americans, are to be subject to this country or independent. And the crown moved toward using force. For years, friction had been building in the provinces. Beginning in September 1774, Gage's forces conducted a number of so-called powder alarms aimed at seizing gunpowder and munitions. Black powder in the colonies was precious and had to be imported since virtually no organic production existed in North America. The Crown put in place a ban on the importation of powder, 
and firearms. Mercilessly, they leveled a number of hard economic measures, closed the Port of Boston, throwing thousands out of work, passed several acts aimed to destroy the colony's economy as well. Americans fought back by boycotting (laughs) British products. In early 1775, after declaring the colonies in a state of rebellion, the the Crown ordered General Gage, the commander-in-chief of British forces in North America, and the military governor of the province of Massachusetts Bay to use, quote, vigorous exertion, unquote, of that force, and, quote, seize the principal actors and invaders, as well as disarm the Americans. During the previous several months, most colonists had hoped for peace and still considered themselves Englishmen as they prepared to defend themselves. The British had demonstrated throughout the history of their empire that without powder and cannon to support a standing army, any rebellion could be easily crushed. Until reinforcements arrived, however, Gage must conduct the disarmament raids with surgical precision, knowing the colonists could recruit potentially overwhelming forces. He spent weeks preparing for the operation to seize rebel munitions that Americans had amassed at Concord. The operation to seize the Patriots' powder and cannon, located by Gage's spies at Concord, unfolded at 10 p.m., April 18, 1775. Over 700 British regulars under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Francis Smith began their journey toward Lexington and Concord. Now, this remarkable untold story is in the best-selling book, The Indispensables, Marblehead's Diverse Soldier Mariners, who shaped the country, formed the Navy, and rode Washington across the Delaware. Smith detached six companies of his elite light infantry and marines, led by Major John Pitcairn, to march ahead of the column and secure two bridges that led into Concord. He also wisely sent a messenger to Boston for reinforcements. The corpulent officer knew he would need them. Through the first faint gray streaks of dawn, the British vanguard saw the fields and hills come alive with armed men darting toward Lexington. One officer remembered a vast number of country militia going over the hill with their arms to Lexington. The Americans had been alerted by Paul Revere and other riders that Smith's regulars were on the march. Rounding a bend in the road, the British saw the darkened silhouettes of Lexington's meeting house and homes. Now, a drumbeat called Americans to Arms. Captain John Parker's militia assembled on the northeast corner of Lexington Common. A veteran of the French and Indian War, Parker knew how to fight. He was also terminally ill with tuberculosis and had only five months to live. But John Parker would have one more great fight in him. Parker's militia had been up all night after Revere's initial warning that the Redcoats were on the march toward Concord. Parker barked to his men, let the troops pass by. Don't molest them without they being first. One American heard a British officer shout, damn them, we will have them. Parker's over 70 patriots nervously eyed the British. As one exclaimed, there are so few of us, it would be total folly to stand here. It was. The Americans were outnumbered and outgunned. A game of chicken ensued. Parker firmly implored his troops, stand your ground Don't fire unless fired upon, but if they want a war, let it begin here. Major Pickerin rode toward the group and yelled to Parker's men, Throw down your arms, ye villains, ye rebels. 
Now, one of Parker's men laid down their arms, but Parker mysteriously changed his orders to disperse and not to fire. Pateran barked, surround and disarm them. Another American heard a British officer shout, ye villains, ye rebels, disperse, damn you, disperse. The redcoats shouted, huzzah, huzzah, to intimidate the Americans. Some men slowly dispersed, others stood their ground, but nobody laid down their arms. Time seemed to stand still. And then the high-pitched crack of a shot pierced the morning air of the New England Common. Nobody knows which side fired first. The British charged and fired into Parker's men only about 30 to 60 yards away. Although known for their iron discipline, training, and tactical prowess on the battlefield, the British officers had lost control of their men. The troops ran wildly through the green. In the ensuing chaos, some Americans held their ground, ignoring Parker's orders to withdraw. Parker's cousin, Jonas Parker, did not move an inch, although writhing in pain from a gunshot room. Knocked prone from the force on his hands and knees, Parker attempted to reload his musket. One of his fellow Americans heard him declare that he would never run. And shortly after uttering those words, a redcoat charged, impaling the New Englander with a bayonet and disemboweling him. Horrified by the unfolding bedlam and his men shooting Americans without orders, Major Pickcairn rode out into the melee and drew his sword, flashing it feverishly in the air, signaling a ceasefire. Eight Americans, including several pairs of fathers and sons, would ultimately die during the engagement. Multiple other Americans were wounded. After regaining control of his men, Smith addressed his officers, only now informed them of their mission, to march to Concord and seat and destroy the cannon and the munitions the provincials had secreted away there. Several of the officers risked their careers and told Smith to abandon the mission. The entire countryside had been alerted. Smith dismissed the warnings and insisted he had his orders. The British column trudged toward Concord. The distance they heard the drone and toll of Concord's church bell pressed into service as an alarm. By about 7.30 a.m., the long column of troops that sprawled near a quarter of a mile arrived in the town. To counter the British militia and Minutemen from Concord and surrounding towns, wielding a variety of their own personal arms, proudly assembled on the hill behind Concord's meeting house. The leaders of the militia ordered their men not to fire unless fired upon, and after a debate decided to withdraw to another hill, nearly a mile from the center of Concord, near North Bridge, that led into town. With the center of Concord clear of Americans, Smith ordered his men, without warrants, to search and destroy any munitions or weapons of war located in the town. Following intelligence furnished from Gage's spies and American trader, Dr. Benjamin Church, they knew exactly where to start looking. After holding a gun to the head of the local tavern over, they were able to locate several cannons buried behind the tavern, which they disabled. They also found a few wooden gun carriages for the artillery and thousands of musket balls that they tossed into a mill pond. The British mission of disarmament at Concord had failed. The forewarned Americans had successfully moved most of their stockpiles. Smith's troops manhandled the cannon carriages and rolled them into a blazing fire, but soon flames from the inferno spread to nearby structures. In a bizarre juxtaposition, the revolution paused, and both sides put aside their differences. 
locals in Concord and the Crown's troops formed a bucket brigade to extinguish the flames that consumed a nearby structure. On the hill overlooking Concord's North Bridge, the Minutemen and the militia saw the billowing clouds of white smoke. Young Lieutenant Joseph Hosmer stormed over to the militia leaders who debated their next move. Will you let them burn the town down? The senior American Colonel James Barrett, who wore an old coat, a flapped hat, and a leather apron, whose farm was now being raided by Smith's troops, looked at the faces of his men. The men showed no fear and urged Barrett to march on to Concord. And Barrett ordered hundreds of men forward, but warned not to shoot first and wait until fired upon. Now I'm going to have to take a short break as we finish the discussion about the Battle of Concord. The Americans having having been hit hard in Lexington. Same day, essentially. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. Let me ask you, what the heck is going on with the banks? These bank failures are absolutely nuts. How are we supposed to find sanity in this mess? And I was talking with Augusta Precious Metals, and they said, Tons of people are buying gold to protect the retirement savings right now. I think it's more important than ever to own gold. And guess what? If you have $100,000 plus saved for retirement, Augusta will actually pay you in pure gold to learn how gold IRAs can protect you. Reach out to Augusta Precious Metals today and get started with gold. If you're worried about the bank failures, this is something you can do for yourself. Just call 877-4-GOLD-IRA. To learn how to protect your retirement and get your free gold coin, that's Augusta Precious Metals at 877-4-GOLD-IRA. Again, 877-4-GOLD-IRA. Consult your financial professionals before any investment and see risk disclosures at AugustaPreciousMetals.com. I got to keep moving on this if you want to hear how it goes. And practically, from, from Breitbart, and practically a repeat of Lexington, a shot rang out. But this time, it's Lexington, it's a Concord now. The British clearly fired first. The shot was later dubbed the shot heard around the world by poet and grandson of Reverend Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson. One British soldier fired without orders, followed by two others, and then the front British ranks erupted in a sheet of flame and smoke as they discharged a volley. Several provincials fell, and many suffered wounds from the fuselage. The skirmish continued for several minutes until the Americans forced the British back into the center of Concord, where they reformed and eventually marched toward Boston. Smith's walking wounded with bandaged arms, legs, and heads marched alongside the hitherto unscathed. The light infantry fanned out in an attempt to protect the flanks of the Redcoat Column, and in the distance... The ridges and hills teemed with swarms of men assembling from the towns in the area. First mile of the march was uneventful until the column hit a juncture known as Miriam's Corner, where several country lanes merged. Here, Minutemen and militia ambushed the British. Using the terrain to their advantage, the Americans hid behind boulders, trees, stone walls, while pouring a deadly volley into the retreating redcoats. The light infantry advanced on the flanks, sometimes surprising and slaying the colonists who fought from their homes and farms. Perched on a boulder-strewn hillside outside Lexington, 
John Parker and his men patiently waited to pounce on Smith's column. Running low on ammunition and having already sustained dozens of casualties, Smith's men ran into an ambush that history dubbed Parker's Revenge. Hit by multiple ambushes, exhausted out of ammunition, and having sustained many dead and wounded, the men neared the ends of their ropes. That's the British did. Most of Smith's troops felt like only a miracle could save them. That miracle came in the form of 1,300 troops led by Lord Percy, arrived to rescue the expeditionary force from inevitable destruction. Percy formed a marching square several columns wide with the light infantry moving ahead, working the flanks. Around 3.15 in the afternoon, after several delays, Percy ordered his men forward. It began now to grow pretty late, and we had 15 miles to retire in only 36 rounds, he said. As the columns and flankers searched forward, British pipers and drummers mockingly played Yankee Doodle. General William Heath, the American commander in charge of the Minutemen and Militia, countered with a moving envelopment of Percy's troops, which the English nobleman described as an incessant fire, which, like a moving circle, surrounded and followed us wherever we went. Minutemen and Militia, indiscernible during the battle, swarmed the British forms, Uh, from all flanks. The Americans defended their homes, firing from windows and doors. The soldiers were so enraged at suffering from the unseen enemy that they proceeded and put at death all those found in them, recalled Frederick Mackenzie, an officer in the Royal Welch Fusilers. Quarter was not always granted, and the British executed several prisoners after they surrendered. Dennison Wallace ran for his life after the Redcoats shot the men around him. Wallace had been struck 12 times and left for dead, but he lived to tell what he had witnessed. In and around the grounds of Jason Russell's house, a dozen Americans, including its owners, were killed defending the home. Russell, 59 and lame, refused to leave the dwelling, and he reportedly declared an Englishman's house as his castle, a macabre scene of weltering, bayonet, bullet-ridden bodies of her husband and her Americans greeted Jason Russell's wife. When she returned to her home after the battle, she described the floor of the kitchen as a lake of blood almost ankle deep. But the Americans would not yield, and the Redcoats ran into many a man like 78-year-old Captain Samuel Whitmore, who protected his home as he hid behind a stone wall, killing a soldier and firing his pistol to slay another. While attacking a soldier with his sword, a ball blew off part of his cheekbone. Then the Redcoats bayoneted him several times, shouting, We've killed the old rebel! Whitmore lay in a pool of his own blood, having been bayoneted six or eight times, and his hat and clothes were shot through in many places. But he would survive to live to 96. Burning homes, killing livestock, plundering anything they could, cramming their haversacks, including the church communion silver. The Brits defied Gage's orders and embarked on an orgy of violence. They lost more men as they pushed east to break through the American gauntlet, a blood-red sunset on the British troops, many of whom had not slept for days as they finally made their way to Charlestown and set up defensive positions, ironically, in a place known as Bunker Hill. In the morning, the British would find Boston surrounded by thousands of Americans. Fearing an attack from within Boston, Gage took the entire town hostage and banned Americans from leaving. And he implemented a gun registering confiscation scheme. And I will tell you the rest of the story after the top of the hour when we return. I'll be right back.
This segment of the podcast is exclusively sponsored by Pure Talk. Pure Talk offers great coverage and can save your family money on your wireless bill every single month. Go to puretalk.com to find the plan that's right for you. Thank you again for listening, and thank you so much for this sponsorship, Pure Talk. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, America. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877 877-381-3811. 877-381-3811. So effectively, the British were defeated at Lexington. Then they rampage their way to Boston, slaughtering and killing as they go along. And we need to understand that the British were brutal to the colonists. As you heard, they'd prefer not to take prisoners, and later on in the war, when they did take prisoners, the vast majority of them died. Tortured, starved to death, dysentery, rancid meat, Many of them died on these prison ships, these massive ships that had been used for freight. And they'd pile up the prisoners in the, in the bottom of the ship. And they'd live in their own feces. They would throw rancid meat down there. And so people were getting diseases. They were dying horrifically. In fact, more than half... of the American militia and regular soldiers who died during the Revolutionary War died in those prison ships. Those British prison ships. So in the morning, the British would find Boston surrounded by thousands of Americans. Fearing an attack from within Boston, General Gage, British General Gage, took the entire town hostage and banned Americans from leaving the city. Next, he implemented a gun registering confiscation scheme. Inhabitants were promised they could leave Boston if they turned in their weapons and registered them with British officials for safekeeping. Americans turned in over 2,000 pistols and long arms along with nearly 1,000 bayonets. Weeks passed before those who so desired could leave Boston and the weapons were never returned. Later, Gage issued a proclamation that anyone who did not lay down their arms would be considered rebels and traitors. In other words, they'd be executed. As the British gathered American weapons, the Americans gathered depositions on the battles of Lexington and Concord from colonists and even captured British soldiers. Employing a fast ship, they would beat Gage's slow transport brig, carrying his report to Britain by nearly two weeks. The American version of events sparked a sensation in London and British papers. The information war to win hearts and minds had commenced. Years after the revolution, Captain Levi Preston 
was asked why he fought in the Battle of Lexington. Was it about the Stamp Act? I never saw one of those stamps. Was it about the tea tax? I never drank a drop of that stuff, he said. The boys threw it all overboard. The interviewer then asked him about several esoteric concepts which which Preston dismissed. As he then responded, young man, what we meant in going for those redcoats was this. We always had governed ourselves, and we always meant to. They didn't mean that we should. It's called American Sovereignty. Patrick K. O'Donnell. Best-selling author, critically acclaimed military historian, expert on elite units. In today's Breitbart, I encourage you to read it. If you didn't hear the entirety of it or if you want to think it through some more. The amount of death and casualties that took place in the Revolutionary War was horrific. And the way these men suffered was horrific. Think about Valley Forge. Think about, well, think about it all. And same with the Civil War. So when you have people today who make mockery of our history, and what all these people sacrificed, they gave their lives. So you can live the way you live today. They gave their lives. I think they'd be extremely disappointed with the direction of the United States today. Extremely disappointed. If not disgusted. Now one of those men fighting at Lexington or Concord owned a slave. Not one. The Revolutionary War began in and around Boston. And when they met the delegates in the Second Continental Congress in Philadelphia, Philadelphia was a free city, not one slave. When they met again in Philadelphia, at what we call Independence Hall, to write the Constitution. Philadelphia and Pennsylvania were not slave cities or states. During the Civil War, on the North, the men who fought were not slave owners. Most were very young men. Some were very poor. Some were farmers. They didn't own slaves. Hundreds of thousands of them would die on battlefields. Horrific deaths with cannonballs, with musket fire. In some cases, worse, burned to death. Battle of the wilderness. Just slaughtered by the tens of thousands. By the tens of thousands. 
they don't get the appreciation that they deserve. None of them. None of them. Think about World War II. All of those men who died in every corner of the planet died at sea. Died on little specks of island in the Pacific. Died in Europe. Southeast Asia. Okinawa. Died. Horrendous conditions. Horrific conditions. They don't get the respect that they deserve. Korean War was another horrendous war. Bone-chilling cold. 48,000 of our men killed. To protect people on the Korean Peninsula. And the country of South Korea was born from that. As China was supporting and backing a Stalinist regime. Un's grandfather, a Stalinist. Family still owns the country. The Vietnam War, another horrendous war. The jungle, the sweat, the mosquitoes. Almost 60,000 men lost their lives in battle. And I could go on. And so when I hear the elected Democrats today, when I hear these Marxists, when I read what they have to say about a white-dominant society, about white privilege, about racism and bigotry, about how America was founded on slavery, of all things, in 1619, the lies, the propaganda, the brainwashing that goes on with the ruling class and the self-appointed elites, it makes me sick to my stomach. It makes me sick with all the money we spend on government education, the lies, and all the money we spend on colleges and universities, the lies, the tenured Marxists, the union Marxists, the American-hating left. Makes me sick to my stomach. The vast majority of these people have contributed nothing to America. Let alone put their lives on the line. Let alone put their income on the line. They're fat. They're lazy. And they're spoiled. And they live off the, off the death and the casualties of generations before. 
They don't appreciate that they live in the lap of luxury, most of which has been given to them, most of which has not been earned, and is undeserved. And they think they have it hard. They think they have it hard. More government programs, more redistribution of wealth, more executive orders. For what? For whom? I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. Don't fall for the free phone deals from Verizon, AT&T, or T-Mobile, folks. Just another trick to lock you into a long-term contract that's going to cost you a fortune every single month. Instead, get a brand new iPhone 12 from Pure Talk for just 12 bucks a month at 0% interest, no contract. Cancel or leave anytime. Get a new iPhone, ultra-fast 5G service, and cut your cell phone bill in half. That's why I'm a Pure Talk customer. That's why you should be, too. You can switch right now at puretalk.com in as little as 10 minutes. Choose from a variety of unlimited talk and text plans starting at 30 bucks a month with plenty of high-speed data, all backed by a 100% money-back guarantee. Go to puretalk.com, enter promo code Levin Podcast, L-E-V-I-N Podcast, and you'll save 50% off your first month. An iPhone 12 for 12 bucks a month and save on your monthly bill. PureTalk.com, promo code Levin Podcast. Restrictions apply. You can see the site for details. Yet another breaking story on this. The hell is it? Wednesday. ABC News. In a win for Jim Jordan, judge denies Alvin Bragg's request to block the Republican congressional subpoena. A federal judge has denied. Manhattan D.A. Alvin Bragg's request to block a congressional subpoena for a former prosecutor in Bragg's office who investigated former President Donald Trump. I mean, after all, the guy did write a book. Judge Mary K. Viscosel, I apologize if I got it wrong, today declined to enjoin the subpoena for testimony about Trump's indictment, clearing the way for Mark Pomerantz to be interviewed privately Thursday, tomorrow, before the House Judiciary Committee. Pomerantz was a special assistant district attorney. He resigned in 2022 over Bragg's unwillingness to pursue the case against Trump. After Pomerantz left Bragg's office, he wrote a memoir about his experience, telling ABC News in February he felt, quote, strongly, you have to apply the same legal standards to everybody, regardless of your president or pauper. Well, they don't apply the same standard. The subpoena-seeking testimony from Pomerantz is the first to be issued by the Republican-controlled committee. Bragg has sued the GOP chairman, Jim Jordan, over the congressional probe, calling it a transparent campaign to intimidate and attack the office. No. It's oversight out of -of out-of-control, rogue prosecutor. This jerk wrote an entire book on what he did in your office, you moron. And he came into your office voluntarily, paid nothing, out of a Democrat law firm in Washington, D.C., excuse me, in New York City. One of the biggest and one of three that were, quote unquote, loaned to the prosecutor's office by the law firm, whose partners include 
Richard Schumer, does that name sound familiar? Chuck Schumer's brother. Yeah, let's get to the bottom of this, all right. So a federal judge has ruled in favor of Jim Jordan and against Alan Bragg. Because the judge has some guts and says, yes, your former assistant needs to give testimony privately to the committee. Don't fall for the free phone deals from Verizon, AT&T, or T-Mobile, folks. Just another trick to lock you into a long-term contract that's going to cost you a fortune every single month. Instead, get a brand new iPhone 12 from Pure Talk for just 12 bucks a month at 0% interest, no contract. Cancel or leave anytime. Get a new iPhone, ultra-fast 5G service, and cut your cell phone bill in half. That's why I'm a Pure Talk customer. That's why you should be, too. You can switch right now at puretalk.com in as little as 10 minutes. Choose from a variety of unlimited talk and text plans starting at 30 bucks a month with plenty of high-speed data, all backed by a 100% money-back guarantee. Go to puretalk.com, enter promo code LEVINPODCAST, L-E-V-I-N, PODCAST, and you'll save 50% off your first month. An iPhone 12 for 12 bucks a month and save on your monthly bill. PureTalk.com, promo code Levin Podcast. Restrictions apply. You can see the site for details. The liberals and the Republicans don't like him, but America does. You can call Mark Levin at 877-381-3811. Well, that's a big deal. A federal judge ruled that, uh, yes, um, Alvin Bragg's former assistant must testify. And she said, look, I'm not getting involved in politics here, and that's one of the reasons I'm testifying. You have not given a legitimate reason why Congress cannot hold an oversight interview. And he hasn't. They're interfering with his investigation. Well, Congress interferes with a lot of stuff. Um, But I don't know how they'd be interfering with an investigation with an ex-volunteer prosecutor who writes an entire book and then goes on a promotion campaign talking about what took place. I mean, you've given up any semblance of any idea of any privileges, confidentialities, or protections of any sort already with your unethical behavior. And I hope when they interview him, they ask him if he did violate New York's rules of uh, ethical procedures and conduct. Because I think he did. It's funny, I asked this question the other day, and now Lincoln Brown asked the same thing over at PJ Media. What are they hiding? What are the police hiding in Nashville? Since a short time back, our editor-in-chief said that there had been a school shooting in Nashville and asked if anyone would cover it. I wrote the first story about it for PJ Media, he points out. Wasn't the first time I'd ever written about human tragedy or cruelty, and I've hated doing it every time. I always feel like Judas collecting his 30 pieces of silver from someone else's suffering. But the Nashville shooting mattered, not just because it gave the left more talking points about the evils of gun ownership. After all, if we're being honest, the left can come up with talking points about the evils of gun ownership over a skee-ball game. What the Nashville murders revealed was the level of disconnect affecting the transgender movement. As did the fact that everyone from the White House on down seemed to be less concerned with the victims and their families. 
than with the transgender community. Also conspicuously absent from the debate has been the incendiary language that that community has used. Pertinent information seems to be in the manifesto written by the woman who committed the crimes. And that manifesto has been declared off-limits. So it would appear that no one is getting access to it. That includes journalist Glenn Greenwald, who has even enlisted the aid of lawyers to get the manifesto from the Nashville Police Department. But the firms have decided to back out of the effort. In his show on Rumble, Greenwald pointed out that had this been an incident involving a far-right extremist, the manifesto would have been made public. It would have been front-page news everywhere one looked. And Greenwald also noted that understanding the shooter's motivation is important for a myriad of reasons, not the least of which is to prevent people from exploiting it. And in the interest of full disclosure, Greenwald might consider this column to be an example of such exploitation. But he also makes the point that the shooter probably does not fit the narrative the media and various other entities find so tasty. Now Greenwald, believe it or not, is a leftist, but he is a very honest leftist when it comes to civil liberties. There are undoubtedly numerous things with which Greenwald and I might not see eye to eye, he writes. We may even wildly disagree about the shooter's motives or the things that caused the incident. I respect his desire to get to the heart of the matter and deal with the facts, and as John Adams once wrote, facts are stubborn things. And the facts may not always favor the side that interests any given individual. Greenwald's trying to get those facts. Two law firms have turned him down. And even the lawyers have deserted him. But the question is why? What is it about the manifesto that requires its contents to remain hidden? By the way, it's now more than a manifesto. There are other journals. There's lots of notes that were taken in addition to a manifesto. The media are asserting that conservatives are attempting to co-opt the issue into an anti-trans narrative. But hiding the manifesto only fuels speculation. Over at National Review, Noah Rothman says, in this vacuum, NBC News suggests conservatives irresponsibly seized on the killer's gender issues and the prodigious writing she left behind, including a suicide note in several journals, according to local police, and concluded that these proclivities implied an ideological motive. That was speculative. But the absence of evidence to dispel that speculation only fuels more of it. One of the reasons that people either hate Christianity or attend seeker-sensitive megachurches, he says, is this passage from John 1. Or as some would say, 1 John. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And as Paul writes in Romans, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because the manifesto may in fact point not to the sins of the right, but rather to the sins of the left. There is reason to hide it and avoid the discomfort of self-examination. The manifesto may show that this person was ill-treated by people on the right, or it may prove that those in the trans community, and for that matter the left, are not the blameless, selfless victims they have made themselves out to be. 
And I suspect there's far too much money and far too many egos, reputations, deals, and political ambitions involved to allow the information in the shooter's writings to be published. Truth is not always easy, or for that matter, comfortable. Brings us back to Greenwald, his quest for the truth, and the thorny fact that his lawyers have opted to turn tail and run raises the question as to why the media, our systems, and the government fear the truth, and for that matter, why they fear a just society. It's very well put. Very well written by Lincoln Brown. Now, here's the thing. This is incredible. That this information would be withheld from the American people, and you've heard almost nothing about it. Where's the local news in Tennessee? The big left-wing Nashville newspaper. The local television stations. Where's the New York Times and the Washington Post? Don't they want access to this information? They have lawyers. They can bring lawsuits. Where's CNN and MSNBC? NBC, ABC, CBS, don't they want to know? No, they don't want to know. Because this person shot up a Christian school. Murdered six beautiful people, including three nine-year-old children. Just like Palestine, Ohio. Joe Biden didn't go to the memorial service. Sent his wife. Joe Biden didn't go. But as the Washington Examiner points out, Biden has invited the Tennessee Three to the White House, but not the families of the Covenant School victims. I want to explore this further when we return, because this is an abomination. Joe Biden is always looking for a scab to pick on the American culture or to create a bruise on the thigh of America. He never celebrates this country. He never shows pride for this country. And look what this country's done for for an extremely stupid, low IQ thug. That's right, I said it! Only in America. Well, and in some other fascistic and Marxist regimes. Can somebody rise like Joe Biden? But he blows off the people in Palestine, Ohio. He blows off these people even worse. In Nashville, Tennessee, he just doesn't fit the narrative. Has nothing to do with his base. So he doesn't give a crap. That's Joe Biden. I'll be right back. Mark in. Don't fall for the free phone deals from Verizon, AT&T, or T-Mobile, folks. Just another trick to lock you into a long-term contract that's going to cost you a fortune every single month. Instead, get a brand new iPhone 12 from Pure Talk for just 12 bucks a month at 0% interest, no contract. Cancel or leave anytime. 
Get a new iPhone, ultra-fast 5G service, and cut your cell phone bill in half. That's why I'm a Pure Talk customer. That's why you should be, too. You can switch right now at puretalk.com in as little as 10 minutes. Choose from a variety of unlimited talk and text plans starting at 30 bucks a month with plenty of high-speed data, all backed by a 100% money-back guarantee. Go to puretalk.com, enter promo code LEVINPODCAST, L-E-V-I-N PODCAST, and you'll save 50% off your first month. An iPhone 12 for 12 bucks a month and save on your monthly bill. PureTalk.com, promo code Levin Podcast. Restrictions apply. You can see the site for details. Joe Biden. He's going to come out from hiding. He's going to welcome the Tennessee Three. Now they call them the Tennessee Three. Isn't that unbelievable? Like they did something profound. Like shutting down the Tennessee House of Representatives. It's amazing how the media create these narratives and push their crap propaganda. President Joe Biden will welcome the Tennessee Three to the White House on Monday. It turns out one of these guys uh, was charged with uh, violence during one of these BLM riots. Remember that, Mr. Producer? He assaulted somebody. The Tennessee Three. Uh, They're going to be invited to the White House, uh, but he has not extended invitations to the families of the victims of the shooting at the Covenant School in Nashville. State Representatives Justin Jones, Justin Pearson, Gloria Johnson, all Democrats, led anti-gun violence protests responding to the Covenant shooting on the State House floor. Yeah, they were exploiting it. friend of mine writes me and he says and so true not only have none of the families been invited to the White House what about the brave police officers that saved so many people in that school Mr. Producer why weren't they invited to the White House the Tennessee Police Department three or more who put their lives on the line to save these these folks at this Christian school. They're the heroes. As my friend Bruce says, they're the real heroes. And they're not invited to the White House. This is sick. This is Joe Biden, who's a sick man. It's not just him. You know who's running this show? The people behind the scene are running this show. And you know who's really running the show, Mr. Producer? Susan Rice. You know how I know that, America? You never see her name in the newspaper. Susan Rice. She is the unelected president of the United States. I think we could call her the first black woman unelected president of the United States. Can we, Mr. Producer? As long as we don't ask for them to define what a woman is, because that that causes a great deal of confusion and angst. But Susan Rice is the unelected president of the United States who is running the show behind the scenes. She's behind the curtain. That's why they won't let 
Big Joe in front of the curtain. They have to shuffle him off. You know, what they do is, you know, it's like a treat with a dog. Have you ever seen a treat with a dog? You know, you show him a treat and they kind of come over. With Joe Biden, he likes ice cream. So uh, at the side of the stage, they get a scoop of uh, chocolate chip ice cream with, uh, with sprinkles on it. He likes the rainbow sprinkles. And uh, Joe's done with an event, and they say, yeah, Mr. Mr. Brett, yeah. And they weigh one of those ice cream cones with the sprinkles on it, and he shuffles off to go get it. That's what they do. I have it on good authority. Eight anonymous sources, Mr. Brett. Eight, count them. I'll be right back. In today's digital age, where cyber threats loom larger than ever, safeguarding your personal information is paramount. So why is Congress considering a law that could put your credit card data at greater risk of being hacked and exposed to foreign networks? This Durbin Marshall credit card bill could jeopardize your financial data, make it more susceptible to cyber intrusions. It's a controversial bill that proposes a shift in billions of dollars worth of consumer transactions to payment networks that lack the robust security measures consumers rely on. Who could possibly want that? Well, the answer, woke corporate megastores seeking to inflate their multi-billion dollar profit margins. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill will undermine our safe and convenient payment systems and endanger your data security. It's time to take a stand. Visit electronicpaymentscoalition.org. Make your voice heard. Tell your senators to oppose the radical Durbin Marshall credit card bill paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, everybody. How you be? I'm Mark Levin. Our number, we're going to take some calls this hour, 877-381-3811-877. 381 3811. Tomorrow I will be flying United all the way out to California. And I land at LAX, which has to be the most horrendous airport on the face of the earth, Mr. Producer. Not the airport itself, but getting in and out of there, I'd be more accurate. It's just terrible. I'd love to go to John Wayne Airport, but I don't want to take one or two stops in between. I don't want to take one or two stops in between because we're having an issue with global warming again, climate change. But before I get to that, when I land, it'll be about uh, two hours all told till we get to the Reagan Ranch. And that is where I'm going to do the radio show from tomorrow evening. Now, if I was your average backbencher, I, I wouldn't do the show tomorrow evening, right? And I'm going to be there for a big event with Young Americans Foundation Friday. Among, <laughs> among other things, we're going to be honoring the great former Attorney General Edwin Meese. A plaque will be placed at the Reagan Ranch. And the Reagan Ranch was everything to the Reagans. Ronald Reagan just loved that place. So did Nancy Reagan. And Young Americans Foundation came in and purchased it because it was up for sale. And they didn't just want somebody to buy it. They wanted to make sure that it was 
protected as a historic place, and it is, and I've never been there. So they invited me, and I'm more than thrilled to be there, and what they do at YAF is so crucially important and has been for decades. So I will fly there, fly the friendly skies, I hope they are. I'll do my thing, and then I'll fly back on Saturday. And I'll continue working on a project that I've been working on morning, noon, and night, and on the weekends. I'm honestly so excited about telling you about this, but I can't yet. It's another one of those deals. Is it a book? Yes, but it's a different kind of book. Is it a picture book? (laughs) No. Is it a comic book? No. But it's very, very important. I think you're going to love it. But anyway, so I'm going to be flying to California. And then I, I saw this in the Washington Compost the other day. I meant to tell you about it. Put this on the list of 10,000 other things caused by climate change, quote-unquote. Scott Dance. No, I won't, Scott. Climate change is raising flight turbulence risks. Here's what to know. Excuse me? Flight turbulence risks? I mean, first climate change is ruining baseball. Now this? Remember I spent like 20 minutes or at least 15 minutes the other day last week reading to you the entire list in my book, Liberty and Tyranny, that was put together by a journalist. And that book is, whatever it is, 12, 13 years old, of all the things the media had blamed on climate change. Remember that? It's never ending. Even contradictory things. And here's Scott Dance to the rescue. Research has made it clear Earth's warming, the result of the burning of fossil fuels, is increasing the risks of bumpy flights. There you go. One sentence. And Scott knows what he's talking about. Why? Well, he works for the Washington Compost. That's why. And the CEO of the Washington Compost is the chairman of the board of the Reagan Library and Foundation. So this... Excuse me, cholera... So this schizophrenia on the part of Fred Ryan, who holds both positions, well, Scott Dance has to be right. It has to do with the ways warming in the atmosphere influence winds at varying altitudes, ladies and gentlemen. You see, we've never had turbulence before. Never. But that doesn't necessarily mean flight turbulence is becoming more common. Despite publicized incidents in recent months involving injuries on flights, from Texas to Germany, from Arizona to Hawaii. Airlines have taken measures to minimize or avoid bumpy air, including through improved forecasting of atmospheric turbulence. But here is what to know about the science behind turbulence and the ways climate change is influencing air travel. Look, give up your car. Stop breathing. Stop exhaling carbon dioxide. Give it all up. Give up your gas stove. Give up your light bulbs. Give it up. And that way, we won't have turbulence, and we won't have as many home runs hit. Yes, according to Paul Williams, a professor of atmospheric science at the University of Reading in the United Kingdom. Uh, anybody in America? A research paper he co-authored in 2019 found it to be the case on a busy aviation route over the North Atlantic. Around the world, it has become clear that atmospheric dynamics have changed significantly since scientists first observed them via satellite data in the late 70s. In the late 70s, it was global cooling, you moron. But let's continue. 
a property known as wind shear. We know what wind shear is, you jerk. The degree to which wind speeds vary at different altitudes has increased by 15% since 1979, the research concluded. So one schmo in Britain writes a paper, and so now this is the whole thing. What does that have to do with turbulence? Well, when wind shear is high, those differences in wind speeds create atmospheric disturbances, much like rippling, if not raging, waves in a surging river. And of course, a surging river, ladies and gentlemen, is caused by what? Climate change. Everything's caused by climate change. You have a rash? Climate change. Your coffee doesn't taste as climate change. Some bird craps on your head while you're staying. Climate change. Birds are crapping on people's heads more often than ever before. Did you know that? Is turbulence affecting flights more often? That's harder to determine from available data. Oh, I see. So that's more difficult to know. But that's the whole point of the headline. Is it not, Mr. Producer? The FAA tracks numbers of serious injuries from flight turbulence, defining them as any injury requiring a hospital stay of at least 48 hours. There's no clear trend in its data. Annual figures have fluctuated from as many as 18 in 2011 to as few as five in 2013 and 2020. Oh. Turbulence accounted for 37.6% of all accidents on large commercial airlines from 2009 to 2018, according to a 2021 national trend. Yap, 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 yap. Why are flights encountering turbulence unexpectedly? I have my own theory on this, which is just as good as this this cockamamie stuff. I have my own theory, ladies and gentlemen. And it's this. It's not turbulence. It's the imbalance of the planes themselves. Now, I'm not talking about the manufacturing of the planes that create an imbalance. That's very precise. They use precision instruments. I started a group called FU, Fatties United. FU is a very prominent organization where registered as far agent, Mr. Producer, because there's fat people everywhere. So I started this group, Fatties United, or FU, to address what? The imbalance on jets. I found with the traveling that I do, when I sit on a jet, for some reason, the airlines put all the heaviest people on one side of the plane. Have you noticed that, Mr. Producer? It's usually the side of the plane I'm on, and they're usually sitting next to me. There I am. I pay extra for an extra row or extra feet, whatever. And there I am. There's a thin kid walks by. I'd say about 5'6". Weighs about 112. I said, please, have that guy sit there. No, no. Guy's like 6'8", 347 pounds. That's the guy I have to sit next to every damn time. He needs one of those seatbelt extenders. You understand what I'm saying? And he can't sit within the armrest. So they pop up. And he's always on the window side. And always has to take a leak or a crap in the middle of the flight. Uh, Excuse me. Oh, my God. Anyway. Back to my own theory. 
So Fatties United was started to lobby the airline industry to better manage the imbalance on the jets. So rather than looking at the size of the suitcases, the luggage, what they should be doing is weighing people before they get on the plane, Mr. Producer. Because the carry-ons, you know, it's the people who are the problem. And so if we could actually take the weight of everybody, particularly the those who are the fattest among us, Fatties United is, has a purpose, we can sort of uh, equate a, I'll call it an equitable situation on the jets, on the planes. You got some 300-pounder on the one wing, somebody close to 300 pounds should be on the other wing. You got somebody who's about 280, back of the plane, and one in the front of the plane. It's not complicated. It's not complicated. Any liberal could do it. And so that's my advice. Rather than these weird things where you, you put the luggage in, oh, look at that, you're a centimeter too big. Oh, you have to check it. I can't check it. All my medicine's in there. Well, you got to take your medicine out. What else is in there? Well, I got my jewelry and my medicine. I, take it out. We got it. Okay, great. I have a better idea. Anybody who's heavy, take their weight. Take everybody's weight, just so we're not discriminating. And then, you know, put people equidistant, one from the other. This is my opinion. Oh, and one other thing. Usually there's like two bathrooms on the plane, one in the back and one in the front. So you give numbers to the particularly heavy people either number one or number two, so they go to the bathroom that's labeled number one or number two. That way we don't have sort of a, uh, a stampede of heavy people toward the back of the plane or the front of the plane. This will stop the turbulence on the plane, not global warming, global cooling, climate change. If you agree with me, please join Fatties United. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. A lot more to get to here in the little bit of time we have left. But I'm very troubled as somebody who is part of Fatties United, in fact, the chairman of Fatties United. Look, I'm heavy, I admit that. And I'm trying to lose the weight. But I never intend to give up the position of Fatties United, no matter how much I weigh. In fact, I'm the DEI director of Fatties United, as well as the Mark Levin radio show. I'm also the senior legal analyst at the Fatty United organization, as well as the Mark Levin Show. So I wear two hats in a double extra large. And then I happened to read this yesterday in Newsweek, Newsweek, which is really a, a disastrous waste of a carbon footprint. Nonetheless, Shannon Power plus-size airline passengers demanding extra free seat divides internet. First of all, I want my people to embrace the word fat. Everybody embraces everything else. 
with a penis, without a penis, a, a, a vagina. Everybody, everybody embraces whatever it is they embrace. Why is it? Why is it that I need a new nomenclature? Plus size. What do you mean? Plus size. Everybody knows what you mean. Plus size. Fat. It's okay. Embrace it. We like to eat. What the hell's the problem? But this demanding extra free seats, that's a left-wing demand for an expansion of the welfare. Oh, I'm a plus size, so I want two seats. I want a free seat. BS. Pay for your extra seat. Pay for it. You don't get anything. And lay off the damn pretzels. May I say, with all due respect, they walk around with a little basket now. Have you noticed, Mr. Producer? Used to get a whole tray of food. Used to get a whole tray of food. Now, it's, it's a little tiny bag of the tiniest pretzels you can imagine. I read the back of it, like, who the hell produces this? Some, you know, goofy group. Tiny, or two cookies. Or some mixed crap, or whatever it is. And I'm, you know, I got a five-hour flight. What, what, what is this? And don't ask for two bags. Oh, no, you get the look. Can I have two bags of the tiny little pretzels? Now. Or you get the look. Oh, okay. Like they're handing you drugs or something. Oh, okay. All right. Plus-size airline passenger demanding extra free seat. That's appalling. And I just want you to know, ladies and gentlemen, that just because I'm the chairman of Fatties United or FU doesn't mean I agree with this person. A plus-size traveler has divided opinion after she said she should not be forced to buy two airline seats because of her size. Now, this one should have to buy three. The plus-size travel blogger Jillian Chaney from Vancouver, Washington, has long advocated for better flying conditions for plus-size people. She started a Change.org petition to encourage the FAA to alter its policies. Why don't you alter your, your, your diet? I mean, look, I sympathize, but if you're so big that you need two seats, that's on you. That's on you. That's what I said. Or just buy the extra room seat. I do that. I did that all the time. I do it whenever I can. It's like 35 extra bucks or something. Unless some jerk gets it before I get there. I hate that middle seat. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. But why should she get an extra seat? No, she wants to be comfortable. Oh, geez, I see why now, Mr. Producer. This Newsweek article actually has photos. Jalen Cheney, may I say something to you with all due respect? You have a health issue there. I'm serious about this. If you need two seats, you pay for two seats. But if you need two seats, you better think about your situation. It's not funny. And as the chairman of Fatties United, I do embrace the word and the reality of 
you know, fatness. But it's one thing to be fat, Mr. Producer, and it's another thing to be massively obese. And if you're going to be massively obese, that's a different group. That's massively obese united, Mr. Producer. That's MOU. All right, I'll be right back. This is the nation's town hall meeting, and you can join in at 877-381-3811. Mr. Producer, let us move to the calls. To whom shall I speak? Ed, Staten Island, New York, the great WABC. Go right ahead, Ed. Hi, Mr. Levin. Uh, thank you it's so Mark. much for being a great It's team. Mark for you. Mark. Mark, thank you, Mark. I'm, yes, Levin. I'm a 64-year-old physician. And, what, uh, kind, what kind of physician, may I ask? In, internal medicine. Internal medicine, does that mean uh, proctology, or what is that? No, no, no. no it's uh, diagnosis and treatment of, uh, of adults. Uh, with, I'm just you know, kidding you. Go right ahead, my Diabetes, yes. tension, you know, yes, thyroid, yes, all of those course. things. Yes. That's what I do. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, and... Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I am uh, I, about to. Well, my wife and I are about to vote with our feet. <laughs> it was it would be once something. Where are you fine, going? We'll move to Florida. Um, uh, we have a place in Hallandale, but we're probably looking for something like Stewart, quieter area. You know, Very even nice. uh, Florida's changed a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, yeah, because all the New Yorkers are moving there. They are. Yeah, that's what's going on. It's yeah. that more city like busy. We have traffic jams in Hallandale, so we got to yes, go north. Yes. yes. Um, yeah, yes. So, so now uh, everyone's going to screw up Stewart, Florida, correct? Well, you know what? That's what happens when this, exactly, when this, something attracts mm-hmm. people to a place. This yeah. is just a known yeah. thing yeah. that yeah. It, uh, ruins the place. But, well, hopefully it won't Well, be maybe too. more people will try Tennessee. Yes. Uh, now, they don't have an ocean. They have nice lakes. A lot of land, but they don't have a state income tax either. That's right. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Why don't you go there? We have a big tree. That's a possibility, I know. Yes, we yes. We, we, um, we also um, have a place in South Carolina, but, you know. Yeah, but Tennessee. Man, oh, man, Ashevich, you're everywhere. <laughs> uh, we're, we're fortunate. So, uh, yes. you know, but we're just selling, I'll tell you, we're selling everything in New York. And, you're, oh, uh, you're selling it all. Okay. All yeah, right. We are. I know. Yeah. Uh, my question, I know the answer, you had answered about, yes, you know, yes. voting for Biden. And uh, how do you get Biden, though? I think he he makes Russia look good. I mean, he's allowing Trump to be prosecuted. He he's he took money and now he's uh, let's try to get off with a lot of things. And uh-huh, uh-huh. and didn't we lose uh a base that was a tactical importance oh, yes. in China. Well, yes, we did. Yes, we did. Yeah, I mean, uh, you're a man who keeps close watch of the news. I can tell. Yeah. By the way, Staten Sorry. Island's supposed to be is the most Republican of the boroughs, right? It, it, yes, it is. Yeah, you know, Rudy Giuliani took really good care of us those years he was there. Oh, the streets mm-hmm. were always good. The place was. Clean, safe, and of course, a lot of not anymore was clean and safe. No more, it's ruined. Oh my goodness! 
It's ruined. It's ruined. Now, well, wait till you get to Los, uh, Los Angeles. I'd you rather were there not. there a couple of years ago. It was horrible. No, no, no. You don't understand. I fly in, do my thing, and get the hell out. That, okay. My okay. wife and I went to San Francisco on something that we needed to do about a year ago. And uh, I had lived around San Francisco maybe, how long ago? 25, 30 years ago. It was a beautiful city. It was, it was like the pearl of the West Coast, if not the whole country. Everybody wanted to live in San Francisco. Even though it was liberal, it wasn't absolute crackpot left-wing Marxist. It was pretty hardcore. But nonetheless, you'd go down uh, Union Street or whatever it was called, Market Street, and they had wonderful restaurants, beautiful, sh- all destroyed. Crap everywhere, druggies everywhere, homeless everywhere, and the Democrats did this. No Republicans have ever been elected there, not in the last 70, 80 years. The Democrats did this to San Francisco. They ruined the city completely. They ruined L.A. completely. Uh, And they're busy ruining all the others in my home city of Philadelphia, where you used to be able to walk down the street on Market Street. Uh, Broad Street was tough, but there were parts of Broad Street, particularly in South Philly, you could go. You can't do it anymore. They've destroyed these cities. Absolutely blown them out. And so now they're destroying the states. Like, you want to get out of Staten Island. I don't blame you. I really don't. Well, what the hell's going on here? Anything else, doctor? Anything I should be looking for? Anything going around these days? <laughs> no, not that I can tell. No, so far, so good. <laughs> and uh, are you going to continue to practice uh, medicine, sir, in... Uh, in Florida, can you can your license work that way? Um, no, I would have to get a new license there. Um, so you have to take a whole other exam. Um, no, no, I don't think an exam's involved. It's, I think it's more credentialing. Um, but um, I'm not planning to practice there. Well, no, you're retiring retire. for good. All right. Well, you'll be on yeah. the golf course yeah. with everybody else. All right, my friend. Thank me for your call. All right, who's next, Mr. Producer? Yeah. Yeah. Hereford, Maryland, WCBM. Is it pronounced Hereford, sir? No, it's Hereford. That's what I thought, Hereford. Everybody knows it's Hereford, Rich. Yeah, it's it's like like H-I-R, but it's not H-E-R-E, but it's Hereford. But it's spelled like, it sounds like H-A-I-R. Is that correct, sir? Yeah, correct. Now, does that mean, Hereford, that bald people can't live there, sir? <laughs> no, I'm still here. <laughs> so, oh, and you're bald? They don't come into that. I started another organization well, in addition to FU, you know. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm yes. a, I have on the side, but not up top. So. All right, sir. Uh, nice to know. How may I help you? Well, I wanted, first of all, I wanted to commend you. Yes, uh, I was yes. in my car when you were doing this. You were talking about Lexington. And yes. I taught United States history for 32 years. Really? In public schools. As, you know, as objective Good as for possible. you. You mean you taught and real history. Of real history, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. my work that I used, the information I gave to my students, more often than not was primary source material. Either yes. notes that have been written or books, or by the people who were involved in it, etc. 
Um, and I used to do literature there as well. So I don't know if you mentioned it or not. Did you mention the poem, uh, The Midnight Ride of Paul Revere? I did not. It's a fantastic poem, as you well know. All right. Well, there's a little insight on it. Uh, I think I've told this story before, but you go ahead. Okay. There were two people sounding the alarm. First of all, who wrote it? Uh, I knew you were catching on that. It was Longfellow, I think. You're exactly correct. At any rate. And you're about to tell me that the real writer was somebody else, and you're also exactly correct. Go ahead. Right, and he, this, the second person, uh, is mentioned in the poem. He's like and another writer that night. So the reason why you don't know the name of the other writer, whose name was William Dawes, yeah, is because his name was not poetic enough. That's right. Because what the what the poet was trying to accomplish was the rhythm of a galloping horse. So it was, listen, my children, and you shall hear the midnight ride of Paul Revere. Da, 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 right. da, da, da. Well, there's no way you, get, you could get William Dawes in there because, listen, my children, and you shall hear the midnight ride of William Dawes. It's like... <laughs> it just but this is a happen. very important point that you mentioned. And Paul Revere was very important, but you're exactly right. William Dawes, D-A-W-E-S, for the people who are curious. Uh, he got the attention he deserved at the time, but not... Not afterwards, that's for sure. Right, and and you were a not, good teacher. What uh, what's going on now? <laughs> well, uh, I retired in '95, and uh, and by I'm, the way, I'm, who was it that set these two men off to to warn that the British were coming? Who was the gentleman who did that? I don't have the gentleman's name. Doctor Joseph Warren. Uh, I know that, somebody I've Warren, talked about right, many in, many times. North, n- n- yeah, the North Church and um, yeah, Doctor so jo- Doctor Joseph Warren, who was killed at the uh, Battle of Bunker Hill or Briggs Hill, I guess. And uh, I used to have a document from him, and he it was written about uh, twelve, thirteen days before that battle. And he was actually much more famous than any of the other revolutionaries at the time. Warren was, and he. Uh, and they wrote a letter, he and two others, to the New York, I guess it was Assembly at the time, or whatever they called it, begging for gunpowder. But New York didn't have enough gunpowder. They never got it. And as you know, on the third wave of the Redcoats up on uh, Bunker Hill, they ran out of gunpowder, did the uh, Americans, and they and they were, they retreated, some of them were killed, and Joseph Warren was shot between the eyes. His body was dismembered, and it was Paul Revere who put in his fake silver tooth and identified him. So it was Joseph Warren who sent Dawes and Revere to warn the militia that the British were coming. But you must have been... Where did you teach? Uh, I taught at a school called Parkville High School. Where? It's uh, in suburban... It's suburban Baltimore, Baltimore yeah. County. Well, good for you. And, uh, Obviously, oh, today uh, they'd have to be sending you off to woke school in a padded room and uh, try and re-educate you. You'd be teaching oh, 1619 Project by now. Yeah. And another thing that you mentioned most people don't know is uh, the Surgeon General. Yes. Dr. Church. That's right. 
he really lucked out because he had a mistress and she turned him in. You got a fight? <laughs> she, she turned him in. Yeah. And, you know, it was just the beginning of the of the fighting and everything. They had no laws really for for trees and everything. So he, he just was uh, banished. That was it. Mm-hmm. He lucked out. Well, listen, call again. You're fascinating. I really appreciate it. Take care of yourself. And we'll be right back. Mark Lovin. So over at Christian Klein at History.com, just to put a fine point in it, both men, Dawes and uh, Revere, were relatively unheralded upon their deaths. But the silversmith Revere got the PR boost of a lifetime when Henry Wadsworth Longfellow penned in 1861 Paul Revere's Ride. Longfellow's history, it's an inaccurate verse, not only venerated Revere, but they they wrote Dawes out of the storyline altogether. The two of them went on horseback to warn that the British were coming. So how did Revere land Longfellow's leading role with while Dawes couldn't even warrant a walk-on cameo, Revere was certainly more prominent in Boston's political underground and business circles, but more important, he'd written detailed first-person accounts of his mission, while very few records of Dawes and his ride existed. And as the teacher pointed out, his name happened to rhyme with the verses that Longfellow had written in 1861. But contemporaries couldn't even recall his name. That is Dawes. William Monroe who had stood guard at the Hancock-Clark house, later reported that Revere arrived along with somebody named Mr. Lincoln. In a Sentinel commemoration, a hundred years, Harper's Magazine called Dawes Ebenezer Door. Even in recent years, the hits keep coming, while Malcolm Gladwell, who you've heard of, lauded Revere's social network in the tipping point. He called Dawes, quote, just an ordinary man, unquote. And perhaps the final indignity it was discovered... <laughs> in 2007, that Dawes is most likely not buried in Boston's King's Chapel burying ground, where his grave has been marked. We're probably five miles away in his wife's family plot in Forest Hill Cemetery. Even in death, Dawes still can't get any respect. So I want to thank the teacher. I want you to be aware of Mr. Dawes. Dawes died at the age of 53 in 1799. Paul Revere went on to live until he was 83 years old. And Paul Revere was one of the early revolutionaries working very closely with Dr. Joseph Warren, Samuel Adams, and John Hancock. These are great, great men who are now supposed to ignore or pull their statues down. Yeah, and all the people that hate them have contributed literally nothing to this country. In fact, all they contribute is hate and unrest. Ladies and gentlemen, we salute our armed forces, police officers, firefighters, emergency personnel, our trucker friends, the men and women, the freedom fighters in Taiwan and Ukraine. I will see you tomorrow from the Reagan Ranch if everything goes right. People say, have a safe flight. I'll do my best. All right, see you tomorrow. God bless. God bless.